Yo, it's the Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. There's a blast. Deep into the night. And a two-run homer for Baez. And there it goes. Abreu massacres this ball to left center field. Donna goes in motion left. Snap it to Michelle. He's running to the left. Angling. 25-20. Got a block for Brown. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown. 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 Trubisky's going to run it, and he is going to get a first down. How about Trubisky to the 42-yard line? Oh, my goodness. In the ring, Steamboat's got him up. A slam. The player inside Crane one, two. He made it. He got it. Steamboat's like Russell. The player has done it. The player has done it. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Good evening. It is under the hood, but it is not hoodie. Jeff Meller and Chris Black filling in for Jonathan Hood this evening, who has the night off. We are keeping our eye on the Cubs as they have the second of a three-game set against the Astros in Houston. John Lester on the mound for the Cubs against Corbin Martin. The rookie for the Astros who will be making his fourth career start. So the Cubs hope to jump on him early without the presence of Chris Bryant in the lineup yet again, Chris. Jeff, what's going on? And yeah, when you take a look at the Chicago Cubs, uh, they've played well in the last month, but in the last week, not so much. And a lot of that has to do with the pitching staff. And we'll look to see if John Lester can get back to his winning ways. Last time out on Thursday, he gave up seven hits, four earned runs, and four innings pitched. On Friday, Hendricks went. He was good that day. But then Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you get Darvish, Quintana, and Hamels all with subpar outings for the Chicago Cubs rotation, a rotation that's been so great to this point in the season. Yeah, and as I mentioned, uh, Chris Bryant will not be in the lineup tonight, although he was taking grounders at third base. Joe Madden said in pregame that he could be back tomorrow. Of course, the designated hitter would be an option for Chris Bryant as they are in an American League ballpark. So if Joe Madden chose to bring him back slowly, just get him back in the lineup, that's a possibility tomorrow night, although it doesn't seem like Chris Bryant will be available today. But yes, he did take grounders at third base earlier in pregame. Pedro Strope. He, uh, of the closing mentality for the Cubs, hmm. something that's sorely been lacking over the last couple of weeks without him, he is going to throw tonight and Thursday for the, for the AAA affiliate. So he is possi- he's a possibility that he will be activated shortly after that, which will be good news for the bullpen, which has had its own issues, just like the rotation recently. Yeah, and you let off by uh, talking about Chris Bryan and the fact that he might be in the lineup tomorrow or as they head towards St. Louis. Uh, where do you stand on Chris Bryan playing in the outfield, moving around in all the different spots that he's played so far in his career with the Chicago Cubs? Should he be at third base every single day? Are the Cubs, Joe Madden, Theo Epstein, the whole group, are they being a little too cute with the best player for the Chicago Cubs? on offense. You know, I I'm not actually hung up on he needs to be at third base specifically because he's not Brooks Robinson at third base. If he were a defender like Manny Machado or Nolan Arenado, one of the best defensive third basemen in the league, I'd be all on bar- board. I'd be I'd be saying, "Hey, look, defensively, you're losing something 
when Chris Bryant isn't at third base. But the reality is he's a little bit above average, not much more than that at third base defensively. So if they think that their best option is to maybe move him into the corner outfield spots, I don't look. I think a, a bit of a freak occurrence. I don't think it's the fact that he's so uncomfortable in right field that, you know, he runs into Jason Hayward. I don't think that's really the reason why. It's I think that that happens. Sometimes fielders run into each other, whether they're playing third base, whether they're playing corner, out, corner outfield spot. So I'm not necessarily thinking that that is a direct result of him being moved around. I think part of the reason the Cubs love what they get from him is because he, is, he does have the ability to play an adequate corner outfield spot and gives them the flexibility to use all of their roster which in turn, when they there's a there's a guy on the you know, with, even though he's not hitting like it, if they want Descalso in the lineup, they can feel like they can use Bryant in a corner spot and get Descalso in the lineup because they like that particular pitching matchup. And Bryant's versatility allows them to do so and give them a better chance to win each and every day. So I'm okay with them moving him around. Until I looked it up earlier today, I was actually surprised he's played so many games in right field. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just kind of left field center once in a while. Uh, In his career, he's played 78 games starting in left field. He's started 51 games in right field. He's played 10 in center. So the majority, obviously, in left field and the majority overall, 506 games at third base where he should be. But... When you're talking about moving him around the outfield, I was actually kind of surprised that both left and right field have been used almost equally. I know more towards left field, 78 to 51, but 51, that's quite a big game. Look, I mean, he is an athletic player. It's not like he's slow and plodding out there. He's one of the fastest runners on the Cubs from home, all the you know, from first all the way to home. I think, you know, we got the spring training numbers. Only Ian Happ was faster around the bases than Chris Bryant. So look, he can move. He's been playing baseball his entire life. I think sometimes, you know, people just, you think, oh, the specialization, he has to be at that spot. But look, I'm sure Chris Bryant played shortstop for the vast majority of his career up until he got to high school because he was the best player on the baseball team, just like yeah. the best players always do, play shortstop. Yeah, and, and then, they pitch, and they, they they hit every fifth player, right? Like, Of course. I know that's against the rules, but the, the, the point I'm making is you basically do everything when you're the best player on a baseball team as a high schooler. You've so. been playing baseball your entire yeah. life. I think the corner outfield spots for a good athlete. If you know, if you're asking me, oh, should you know Schwarber still be catching frequently from here and there? I, like that's a different story, you know, be, because there's obviously some downside to doing something like that. But I think with Chris Bryant, when you want to get, when you want to use your entire roster based on the pitching matchups, he just fits so well into what the Cubs do that I. And again, I don't think you're losing a whole lot defensively at third base because it's not like Chris Bryant is the best defensive defender at third base. I know this is a long season, the baseball season. And when we take a look at the Chicago Cubs and the Astros who are facing off tonight, the Astros are 36 and 19. The Cubs are 30 and 22. Do you put any weight in the fact that we have two first place ball clubs going against each other this week in this series? Is there anything to take away from this? If the Cubs could come away with a series victory, is there anything to learn? Even though they, they Mm. had a tough weekend against the Reds where the Reds came in, they pitched well and they, they beat the, Chicago Cubs. Uh, is there anything to take away from the Houston Astros series? Because yesterday I was here with Abdallah in for Cap in the morning, and and the thing that I pointed out was it's just a fun series for me to look at because these are the two teams in modern baseball history who both tanked and mm-hmm. then hit the bottom of the pool and bounced right back up with a championship in 2016 and 2017. Now, how do they prolong what they've built with those teams that tanked out? 
collected young prospects and then were able to win championships, both the Cubs and the Astros, in back-to-back seasons. It's interesting because, yeah, it's not. I don't look at it as like a litmus test in any way because the the reality is in baseball, it's so hard to just say, okay, we're going to take this three-game series and say we're going to measure ourselves against this team because you can't really play harder in baseball. No, it's it, it's not a sport that works like that. The reality is you just go out and you play your best baseball each day in and day out, and eventually, if you assemble the right team, the numbers will take care of themselves and you'll win more games than you lose and ultimately be a playoff team. I think what you can do, though, if you're a Cubs fan, you watch the Astros and you say to yourself, okay, maybe you don't watch them closely like, like you do the Cubs, and you can realize, boy, they're a really good baseball team. And I'm not saying the Cubs could not beat them in, in a World Series, but I'll tell you what. If all things were were equal and both teams were fairly healthy, not missing key components, I think the Astros would be the heavy favorite in Vegas. But again, in a short series in baseball, that doesn't mean the Cubs couldn't beat them and win the World Series. It's just that when you look at the way the team is comprised, the Astros from top to bottom have less holes than the Cubs. And so in baseball, I think a lot of times what you're looking at now is not so much who's got the you know the better top end players, but you're looking at who has the fewest holes on the roster? And when you look at the Astros up and down, and then you look at their minor league system as well, the Astros are strong. And so the, like everyone thinks about this Cubs team being the window for them to win championships. But if they actually do have to look at the Astros, you've got to say that is a true competitor that you have to go head-to-head with. It's just a matter of you only have to beat them four games if you actually play them in a series. It's an impressive roster because they're missing star players as well. Yes. Just like the Cubs without Chris Bryant the last couple of days. And you see them come through and, and put together runs. And and that's where you kind of look at the Astros who are playing some of the best baseball in the American League. That just the after Minnesota the Minnesota Twins, Twins who and just bludgeoned the White Sox the, over the holiday weekend. The Twins have been awesome, but like I think a lot more... People would put more stock in yes. the Astros and the Twins that carried that through the rest of the season into the playoffs. Absolutely, because they have the pedigree and the pitching that you could look at and say, I trust that in October that team can win and go deep into the playoffs. He's Chris Black. I'm Jeff Meller, again, filling in for Jonathan Hood this evening on Under the Hood. Well, it's the day after Memorial Day, Chris, and yeah. usually that means the start of summer. But... If you look outside, if you've taken a stroll around it all recently, it feels like football season to me, Chris. This is football weather, my friends. I love it. And we are 100 days away from the kickoff of the NFL season, which will happen right here at Soldier Field as the Bears host the Green Bay Packers. And Jeff, there's never a uh, time that's too early to talk football, and that's what we're going to do some tonight. We'll talk with Connor Rogers from Bleacher Report at 7.30, so that's going to be a good conversation coming up in 15 minutes right here on ESPN 1000. But Jeff, you know, the the one thing is, if we're taking a look at this Bears team hanging into next season, we know what's set up in front of us, right? We have a team that won the division last year. We have a team that lost to the Eagles in the wildcard game in the double doink, which was not great. But that's something that <laughs> less, you... Less than that great. It, it, it's not ideal, but I think we would all agree, all Bears fans kind of look at that contest and we say, you know what? The Bears were good enough to win that game. We need to fix the kicker position. A little special teams uh, uh, tweak here and there. And this team is good enough to compete at a high level in the National Football League for a championship this upcoming season. And I do think that you you say not great. We, as a as a fandom looked at that playoff game and were able to it was just a bit more palatable because the Bears season was a little bit unexpected and 
we were on a great high all year during the NFL season with the Bears. And so even though it was a painful way to lose, I think as as the season you look back on it, you said, you know what? I had a lot of good feelings from this Bears season. So even though it was a terrible way to lose a playoff game, it wasn't as crushing as sometimes a playoff loss like that can be if you're in the middle of a run. Now we're, as we enter the second season, we're, the expectations are a lot higher for the Bears. I mean, it, it feels like Super Bowl or bust in all reality. They, they, if they get the, the NFC Championship game and lose in a painful way, I don't think Bears fans are going to feel nearly as good about this season as they did last year. You know, the gut punch of the double doink is something that sat with us for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. But right now, I feel much better about it going forward because, like you were kind of uh, pointing to, is that hope was not lost. Yeah. The game was lost. The season was lost. But hope was not lost because the team's ascending. Now, if the team was towards the end of a run, like you're saying, and that happens, then you kind of feel like, wow, that's really the end of this. Uh, we, How could you uh, bounce back going forward after something like that takes place and the way you lose a playoff game that way? But the, but this team is set up to win. They've got a, a great defense that was ranked number one in the NFL last year. They have a quarterback who's developing. They have a head coach who's a maestro in the uh, offensive categories and coming up with plays. He's a maestro and everything. Uh, Colts are setting. Yeah, and, and so everything looks like it's set for this team to progress in a positive fashion. And that's why today, looking out 100 days out from the start of the season, that's why I'm not as devastated as maybe I was the week after the loss, because now things are positive again. They'll fix the kicker position. Hopefully they won't be in that situation again. Uh, we both understand kicking is important in playoff games. You have to be able to make kicks to move and move on and advance in the NFL playoffs. But really, in reality, this team is set up to win this year, and you're right. If you get to a championship game, an NFC championship game, and you lose... I think most people in this state will be disappointed because the expectations will be that this team can go to the Super Bowl this season. And we've got that ticking time clock as mm-hmm. well with Mitchell Trubisky and his yeah. rookie contract. And that's going to be a topic that is not going to go away anytime soon. And we can get to where what Mitch needs to do in order to prove that he would be worth a second big contract from this this team. Although I suspect that Ryan Pace will almost certainly be tied to Mitchell Trubisky. He's going, my expectations, or I guess what I would expect to see him do statistically with this offense would be much higher than I think Ryan Pace would expect if I were to re-sign Mitchell Trubisky to a long-term franchise quarterback type deal. But I think the fact that Ryan Pace drafted Mitchell Trubisky and traded draft equity marries him to Mitchell Trubisky, unlike maybe a little bit more objective uh, person in this whole situation. No matter what, though, it all is going to, it all falls on Trubisky's shoulders. Oh, yeah, it it definitely does. And you point to Ryan Pace, and I agree with you. I think he will hold on to Mitch longer than maybe some will just because of the, you know, he put his neck out on the line for him, uh, trading up, getting Mm -hmm. Trubisky, saying this is the guy, you know, Heaven forbid, if he didn't go to that Sun Bowl and see what Mitch did against Stanford in that uh, bowl game, uh, who knows what the outcome would have been for the Bears in that draft for quarterback. But he selected Trubisky. That's his guy. And Mm -hmm. until he is proven wrong, Trubisky's going to be the guy. So you're right. 
no matter what really happens, the clock is ticking against a new contract for Trubisky. But I think no matter what happens, he's going to be the guy that gets that new contract from Ryan Pace. Whether or not that's good or bad for the future, long-term future of the team, because you look around the NFL, once you start paying that quarterback big money, he has to be able to make up for other holes within your roster that elite quarterbacks make up for, like the Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady's do across the National Football League. And I think I personally am still skeptical that Mitchell Trubisky can get to that level. I'm not going to completely write him off and say that it cannot happen, but what I've seen from him so far, look, there's a lot of throws that Mitchell Trubisky missed that if he makes, the Bears don't need to rely on Cody Parkey to hit a field goal to win a football game. And, you know, elite-level quarterbacks don't miss throws downfield in playoff games that can put them put their teams in position to be leading, you know, with under two minutes to go, not necessarily chasing those points. So where will Trubisky be when all is said and done this year? In fact, Lewis Riddick brought up a point uh, yesterday that riled up some folks by hmm. saying, and, I, and this is interesting because I'm surprised so many people reacted so strongly to Lewis's point he believes Carson Wentz will be the MVP for this upcoming 2019 season just wanted to throw it out there for the folks he said I don't think that's that crazy because look in 2017 Carson Wentz was well on his way through 13 games of the NFL season to winning the NFL MVP award it was his award to lose and really the only reason he did not win it was because he left a game against the Rams where he tore his ACL and some voters decided, you know what, 13 games, it's tough to vote for the quarterback through 13 games, even though his statistics were magnificent magnificent at that point. And so Tom Brady, who also had a very strong year, got a few more votes and ended up winning the NFL MVP right out from under Carson Wentz, when in all reality, he was basically the winner in 2017, had he not suffered an injury late in the year. Yeah, in 2017, uh, the record was 11-2. and two. Uh, with Carson Wentz as starter for the Philadelphia Eagles. He threw 33 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Uh, his completion percentage was... Where's completion percentage? Trying to look for it. Uh, 60% completion percentage, which uh, was 69.6 nice. this last season. So it, it raised uh, up nine points this last season in 2018. Uh, you know, Jeff, the, the thing is, I, I get that people are kind of looking at it a little shocked, a little side-eyed, but I, to me, it's like, wasn't he the hot name last summer for MVP? Absolutely. It, t- it, ta- it takes, look, you tear an ACL, it takes a little bit of time to get your rhythm back. And so he was a little... But if back, he wasn't hurt, we would all course. be talking last season like, about him being the guy to be the next MVP great quarterback in the National Football League. Carson Wentz was essentially, before he tore his ACL against the Rams in December of 2017, Carson Wentz was Pat Mahomes before Pat Mahomes was on the scene in 2018. He had basically put up some ridiculous eye-popping stats, and his team had the best record in their conference and was on their way to hosting you know, the the, uh, NFC playoffs. And he tears his ACL, and unfortunately, cannot garner the votes. You you still could have made the argument that Tom Brady, who won it that year, you still could have made the argument that Carson Wentz deserved it over Tom Brady. Tom Brady just happened to play 16 games, and so they felt more compelled to give him the vote. Now, if I handed out a different name that wasn't Patrick Mahomes to win the MVP next season, and it's not going to be Carson Wentz, 
I think the name that a lot of people are probably going to point to is because uh, this team is expected to be really good. Oh. They, they've got really good offensive and oh. defensive line play. They led the National Football League last year in rushing. And rushing. But mm. this quarterback is back. We saw that the shoulder was healthy last season. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people pick Andrew Luck to be the that, MVP oh, next year. That's a perfect point. And you know what, though? The, your first two points, you were making a team that uh, was was a, was hot last year and has uh, you know kind of garnered a lot of the Cinderella or, uh, or if you will, the hot team that t- people like this year. I was thinking Baker Mayfield. Oh, yeah, that too. Baker that Mayfield that, yeah. may get plenty of uh, interest in terms of MVP if he can do, repeat anything close to what he did his rookie year with these new skill weapons around him. You may have yourself a Baker Mayfield MVP conversation. This all brings us to the point, though. What does Mitchell Trubisky need Hmm. to do Hmm. to be in the MVP conversation for the Bears this year? What statistically does he need to do? Because, look, he's probably not going to match what Pat Mahomes did last year. That's a bit ambitious. But if Pat Mahomes comes back down to earth just a little bit, what does Trubisky need to do offensively, knowing that Matt Nagy is going to set him up to succeed? So it's a great question there, Jeff, because Pat Mahomes last year, 50 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. He was by far the best quarterback in football. Andrew Luck had 39 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. Matt Ryan, he threw for 35 touchdowns, tied with Russell Wilson, 35 touchdowns, both with seven interceptions, I think. All four of those quarterbacks would be in the MVP conversation if we're only looking at quarterbacks. For Mitch Trubisky, I think one one thing that absolutely has to take place, he has to hit the 30-touchdown plateau. Oh, higher. If he gets to 30-plus touchdowns, then you have to look at the team win-loss. If the Bears are a team that wins 12-plus games, 30-plus touchdowns, and the interceptions are below what he had last year at 12, then I think you could look at Mitch Trubisky as an MVP candidate for next season. But it, it, it's threefold, right? He has to limit the interceptions. He has to have an outstanding number of touchdowns. And the team wins have to be there, too, because he's not the type of quarterback who's going to get pub as an MVP if the team's 500. The Bears have to be one of the best teams in football oh, for sure. with that offense rolling for him to be in the MVP conversation. Now, now the question is, too, for Mitchell Trubisky to be in the MVP conversation, does he also need a little bit of regression from the Bears' defense? Does in order for that narrative to take hold, does the number one rated defense in all football last year need to fall back to the you know in the ten to fifteen range, giving perhaps you win some shootouts, giving analysts the idea that look it's not defense and Khalil Mack that's carrying the team anymore, but oh look they're still despite the fact that they've fallen back they're still one of the best teams in football. Does that need to happen in conjunction? With Trubisky improvement. Narrative-wise, I agree with what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, if we were to set this in reality, do you think he's good enough to do that? I don't, but (laughs) I don't want to rule it. I don't want to completely rule it out. Wouldn't you say it may be more likely for the narrative to be the defense keeps them in close games and then Trubisky's able to have fourth quarters like he had in the wild card game against the Eagles to bail the Bears out of a game? Like, right, like maybe the stats aren't there, quarters one through three, but in the fourth quarter, he finds a little magic to uh, to assist with that great defense, keeping them close. I think that's more likely than the the second op, the first option yeah. you gave of the shootouts in the 40s where the Bears offense is leading the way. 
I, I, yeah, realistically, from what I've seen, I certainly think that's possible. Again, he's Chris Black. I'm Jeff Meller filling in for Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood this uh, evening. Football. Lots of football talk. Again, you can uh, smell it in the air. It's nice, brisk May Day. Connor Rogers of Bleacher Report will join us next as we are 100 days away from the start of the football season right here on ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. As we know, uh, last year didn't end the way we had hoped for it to end, so we're coming out here with a little chip on our shoulders and knowing that that was not our that was not our best last year. So all we had, you're either getting better or worse each and every day. So we just have to keep uh, trending in the upward direction. We coach uh, great defense, you know, with the Ravens and you know Ed Reed. That's my favorite safety. So when I heard that, that's all I needed to hear for real. But it's just to see the things he's the, the type of defense and, and style of play he's put in for us, and I feel like we're gonna have a lot of success. First voice you heard, Roquan Smith. That second voice you heard was the all-pro safety for the Chicago Bears, Eddie Jackson, talking about Chuck Pagano, comparing him to Ed Reed, saying he sees a little bit of Ed Reed in the safety that uh, he once coached in Baltimore, who and now Eddie Jackson, who, who will be under his tutelage here in Chicago. That would be great for High us praise. Bears fans, that mm-hmm. if uh, Eddie Jackson could have half the career that Ed Reed had, that would be fantastic. For all of us Bears fans, because Ed Reed, one of the best safeties I've ever seen play football, clear Hall of Famer. And uh, Jeff, you take a look at this defense. I think we look at it and all the the players who are returning and everything that's there. I think we we know it's going to be a good defense, whether or not they can take away the football like they did last season. They led the NFL 36 total takeaways last year, 27 interceptions, nine fumbles. They led the NFL in takeaways. That is not something that's guaranteed year in and year out from a defense. The stars are going to be there. Khalil Mack, Eddie Jackson, they're all going to be there. They'll be good. But can they get the turnovers like they did last year to lead to being one of the best defenses in football? Far from being guaranteed, Chris. In fact, every team that leads the NFL in uh, statistically and in in takeaways like that, yeah. in fact, never repeats what they did the previous season. So the Bears need to be expecting some regression. They're just not going to have the fumble luck that they had last season. Sure, they may still create a lot of turnovers via the interception with that pass rush, but it'll be harder to just rely on getting the fumbles that they got because that doesn't happen year in and year out. They were fortunate. So to your point, in 2017, it was Baltimore that led the NFL with 34 takeaways. Last season, Baltimore was 22nd in football with 17 just goes to show it's hard to repeat the takeaways year in and year out we do know that uh, a man who knows a thing or two about how football works connor rogers of the bleacher report is joining us now here on espn 1000 jeff meller chris bleck filling in for jonathan hood on under the hood connor we were discussing earlier about uh mvps and uh just exactly what mitchell trubisky would need to do to even put himself in the mvp conversation and connor if you can kind of bring yourself to visualize that situation in any way, shape, or form, how could you see it unfolding where Mitch Trubisky would actually have a little bit of buzz around his name as an MVP candidate? Well, hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And, uh, I mean, I would, I would love to see a Mitch Trubisky MVP season. I feel like for whatever reason, he doesn't really get any love considering the big jumps he made from his rookie season into his second year where he was working with a head coach that – truly understands the offensive side of the game. And we've had Mitch on our show at Bleacher Report two times now. 
once right before he got drafted and then a couple weeks ago. And just to talk to him, you could hear the different confidence. You could understand where he's at and that, you know, he hopes to move on from being a guy that is, I don't want to say managing the game, but really managing the offense and instead being a guy that makes plays, really wins you games. That's what they always talk about in scouting with the NFL. Who's the guy that can, you know, can manage the game and who's the guy that can win you the game? And I think Mitch has the tools to win the Bears games. And I think you look at that offense now. The reason why it's hard to imagine him as an MVP, I think this team is going to run the football a lot, and I think they're going to run the football very efficiently. David Montgomery was one of my favorite players in this draft, one of my favorite skill players in this draft. He has workhorse potential, and what you love about him a little bit more than Jordan Howard is that he could be a pass catcher. But when you get back to Mitch, it's a league where if you don't have 50 total touchdowns, how do you win the MVP season? So are the Bears a team that they feel they need to air the ball out? I don't think so because I think the defense is so good. And unfortunately, it's such a stats-based award. So it almost feels like if Mitch had to throw the ball that many times, something went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And especially you take a look at the way in year one of Matt Nagy's system and Mitch learning that system. I think a lot of us here in Chicago take a look at that offense. And we've been in the stone ages of offense in the National Football League. And now we finally have some new technology. What do you think the offense needs to do in year two to take another step forward? Well, I think they need to really spread the ball around. And I think that's something that Nagy, Nagy has really done well in his offense, even when he was in Kansas City. I thought that team was spreading the ball around. I think when you look at the balance on this roster, you have guys that have been there before long enough where Allen Robinson should really be the go-to guy, but he doesn't have to be this number one that's a target hog all the time. I think you love the different things Tariq Cohen can do. But now you got to get the new guys involved, and I think that's really, really exciting when you talk about that. And I talk about the two players they really just took, David Montgomery. Like I said, he can catch the ball out of the backfield, and he's probably the best running back in this class at picking up yards after contact, which is a really special trait in his game. Riley Ridley is somebody that's so special on the timing and and the breaks of his routes, and I think that's the most important skill when you look at Nagy's offense. So when it comes down to it for me, they're just going to look to scheme people open, and it's all going to be timing-based. And I think the beauty of it is when that timing breaks down, I think Trubisky is somebody that can tuck the ball and run or at least scramble and keep his head up to throw the football down the field. So if they can really be an offense that can beat you in not just two different ways, but maybe five different ways, whether that's a couple different targets, two backs in the backfield that can catch the ball, can run inside and outside, and a quarterback that is very, very mobile, I think that's the best news for Chicago's Chicago Bears fans going into this season. We're talking to Connor Rogers of Bleacher Report and the Stick to Football podcast here on ESPN 1000 under the hood. Meller and Black filling in for hoodie tonight. Connor... In Chicago, the team we have been dissecting for the last couple of years has been the Los Angeles Rams because everybody wants to comp Sean McVay, Jared Goff, and the Rams and who the Bears could be eventually. I'm curious, though, as we're seeing what's happening with the Rams right now, they've got a contract decision that they're going to need to make on Jared Goff very soon. And some people, it, you know around the league have wondered if that is something that they're going to be locked in on, if they need to extend Jared Goff long-term. And at the same time, uh, one of their most valuable offensive players, Todd Gurley, is dealing with a knee issue that has us wondering just how long he's going to be able to play football at the level he's made us accustomed to. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on the Rams and what they have going on right now, even though they're under the guidance of Sean McVay, who's clearly a brilliant offensive mind. 
Yeah, well, it's fascinating. You look at, obviously, drafting a guy like Darrell Henderson from Memphis, an explosive back. I mean, that signals to me that they want to take some of this load off of Todd Gurley. And there is clearly some kind of concerns there about the amount of workload he can take and playing on that knee. And I've even heard that he's, he's looked to lose weight this offseason to take some of the body weight and stress off of that knee. So it's a fascinating situation when you look at their ground attack. I think in the wide receiver and really the aerial game, the golf thing is fascinating to me because at times we were talking about last year that he was in the MVP race, and it goes back to stats. And now we're talking about will they even want to extend him? I think the problem for the Rams is they're just going to be too good these next couple of years where they're never going to be in an opportunity to pick a quarterback in the top ten unless they found some kind of way to move up in a trade package that would cost them just about everything. And at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, is that risk even worth it when Goff is somebody who just got you to a Super Bowl last year? I think it's kind of ridiculous to bring it up right now, although it has been brought up. And you have to wonder, will his agent ask for him to be the highest-paid quarterback in the league? Because obviously nobody thinks he should be, but that's just the way the salary structures have worked. And I think the one thing that nobody talks about with this team is they're a completely different team when Cooper Cup is on the field. That's the most important thing to me. I think when you look at that connection between Goff and Cooper Cup, it's an entirely different Rams offense. It's a 40 to 50 point kind of Rams offense when Cup is on the field, or at least it felt that way many times where games were just complete blowouts of the connection that they had and the ability of things that they can do. So I'm still a believer in the Rams. I thought they drafted well. I think Sean McVay, you guys said it. I mean, he's probably the brightest young coach in football right now, and it seems like he can make just about anything work on the offensive side of the ball. I am curious to see how this defense is. Aaron Donald, to me, is still the best defensive player in football pretty much every single year, it feels like, at this point. So the Rams should be a contender, but the biggest issue is the NFC is is still improving every year. Carson Wentz is back in Philly. The Bears won 12 games last year and and really got hosed on by a kicker. It's the worst way to go out. So the Rams, it's fascinating. Did they get? Did they improve enough to stay ahead of everyone? That's the question that I'm really wondering right now. Connor, are you buying into the overhype of the Cleveland Browns hanging into the season? Uh, I would call myself a little more skeptical than most because let's not forget the Ravens won that division and won 10 games last year. And sure, they lost C.J. Mosley, but their rookie quarterback is going into year two. You'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt that he can improve as a passer. You got Earl Thomas, who was the best free safety in football before he got hurt, playing alongside Tony Jefferson and a really, really good cornerback in that secondary Marlon Humphrey that gets no love. So I love the Browns on paper. They're tremendous, tremendous roster, and that goes back to John Dorsey. But uh, it's weird to crown them already when they have a first-year head coach. I think Baker Mayfield is absolutely phenomenal, and it goes back to once again, this is a team just loaded with weapons across the board. Uh, But I think to discount a team like Baltimore right now would be absolutely silly. Hmm, interesting. Baltimore. Is that just for the AFC North, Connor? Or uh, do you think the Ravens? Okay. Uh, Since uh, curious as to your thoughts on the Patriots without Rob Gronkowski, obviously Gronk had slowed down over the last couple of years, but he was still a playmaker in the playoffs when they truly needed a big target. Without him this season, you're just going to write the Patriots uh, into the AFC Championship like you do every year? Or do you actually have some reservations for once? I will, but I still love what the Chiefs are doing over there in terms of talent and in terms of the, the really the magician that is Pat Mahomes in that offense. It's unbelievable. Another thing I'll say is they actually upgraded a pass rusher. I think Frank Clark is a better player than D Ford, a more well-rounded player. So I'm curious to see if that defense can finally get 
you know, really get the offense the ball back at any point. That was something they struggled with last year. You look at New England, I think, sure, Gronk was an incredible mismatch target. And I think more effectively, even he was like a sixth offensive lineman at times. And that's a team, you see how many running backs they have on that depth chart right now. They want to run the football nonstop as Tom Brady gets older and older, but doesn't appear to be slowing down, especially with his favorite target and Julian Edelman there. The offensive line has a lot, a lot of talent. And they're actually getting some back from injury this year. So I'm, I still think the Patriots are the favorite in the AFC. I, I really do. Of course, they, you know, we can sit here and say, is this the year things finally go wrong? But every time something goes wrong, Bill Belichick actually makes the right adjustments to fix it. The Green Bay Packers uh, went out in free agency and spent on defense. They also drafted on defense. Do you like what the Green Bay Packers uh, addressed and went after this uh, offseason? Well, in the draft, it was 50-50 for me. I did not like the Rashawn Gary pick in the top 15. I thought that was a, a giant reach. I know teams had first-round grades on him across the board, but at the end of the day, a very raw player that you have to wonder, how much better does he make that front seven? But Darnell Savage, the safety they got out of Maryland, is just the definition of a playmaker. You talk about speed, ball skills, tackling. He's going to fit in over there brilliantly. I did like what they did in free agency. It was nice to see them finally spend some money and improve. But you have to wonder, guys, once again, is it enough on offense for Aaron Rodgers? They took Jay Sternberger. He's a true move tight end. You're never going to ask him to block. He can't do it in line. So you have to wonder, is he a good enough mismatch weapon in the slot as a, as a move tight end to be effective? We'll find that out. I think Devontae Adams is tremendous, maybe one of the most underrated wide receivers in football. But once again, is, is it enough? Is this a team that can run the football? Is this a team that has those secondary pass-catching options for Aaron Rodgers? And is more importantly, is this relationship between Matt LaFleur and him going to work? Because from everything you've heard over this offseason, it's hard to have any reason to believe in it. I'll tell you that much. So, it, it, once again, they're a really a wait-and-see kind of team like the Browns. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to come out really angry this year. He doesn't like when the spotlight is away from him. And right now that spotlight has been taken from him from Pat Mahomes, is viewed as the best quarterback in the league. So, I think Green Bay's defense will be improved. But I just wonder, again, did they do enough on the offensive side of the ball in a league where all these teams are trying to score 30, 40 points every single week? Connor, as we uh, say goodbye, give us a quick synopsis of what you thought about the Bears draft class without a first or second round pick this year. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. When, I mean, they got my top running back in David Montgomery, and I think Riley Ridley will be a really, really nice number three wide receiver. I know they like Anthony Miller there. But I think it's always good to have competition and depth, especially at a spot like wide receiver where guys go down in camp every single year. Ridley is somebody that is one of the most pro-ready wide receivers in this draft. Montgomery, to me, was just com was very comparable to Josh Jacobs. I didn't see the gap between them that everyone else did. So when you only have that many picks and you get maybe two guys that can play some starter reps this year, I loved it. Connor Rogers, Bleacher Report, thanks so much for hopping on with us on ESP 1000 this evening. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. That Thanks, Connor. Connor Rogers. Again, follow him on Twitter at Connor J. Rogers Bleacher Report and stick to football podcast. All right, coming up next, we've got some free stuff to give away, and Ooh. the Lakers are an absolute dumpster fire right now. This and that, that's different from the last six years, how? We'll discuss. Oh, all right, good. On ESPN 1000. <laughs> You're listening to my man's and them, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. No hoodie tonight in the first Midwest Bank studio. Jeff Mallor, Chris Black filling in for Jonathan tonight. And boy, 
Sometimes when you are the when you're at the top of the marquee, it's a good thing because you uh, you get the admiration and coverage even when it's not deserved. But when your name's at the top of the marquee, you also have all your dirty laundry aired out in public ad nauseum, and that is what's happening to the Lakers these days, Chris. Well, you know, being at top of the marquee, the NBA marquee, if they were not dysfunctional, the Mm -hmm. dirty laundry would not be out there. But the problem is they are completely dysfunctional because, you know, they went out and they hired people who've never done this, run basketball organizations before, Mm -hmm. to run their basketball organization. Magic Johnson, he had never done this before. Rob Palenka, he was a super agent for Kobe Bryant. He has never done this before. Big surprise to me that all of a sudden this is not working out and we're finding out about it now. It's not a surprise. I'm being sarcastic. It is. It is. Here's the thing. They got LeBron James last summer. A lot of that, if you read between the lines and you read everything that's out there and available to the general public about the NBA, a lot of that move has to do with LeBron James and his business aspirations outside basketball. Absolutely. He wanted to move to Los Angeles because of his projects with Warner Brothers and his projects outside of basketball. Okay, that's fine. That's the decision he made. No matter the team that was there, yes. if the Clippers were the team of legacy in Los Angeles, that's probably where he would have gone instead. But they're not. So it's the Lakers. They get LeBron James. It's a gift. Now, the fact that everything around the fact that LeBron James landed there being a disaster is not a surprise to me because you have two guys who have never ran a team, never ran a team successfully, running the Lakers. And it's not a surprise that this article comes out today from Baxter Holmes on ESPN.com, a fantastic article. It's uh, the headline, Lakers 2.0, the failed reboot of the NBA's crown jewel. A lot of great details in this piece. Uh, Rob Palenka uh, lying. Uh, you have Magic Johnson being a hate monger, a uh, fear monger in mm-hmm. the organization, uh, creating uh, people to uh, be fearful of his presence, uh, the two-faced nature of Irvin Johnson and Magic Johnson. And then you also have the information that I think has not been covered enough, the fact that LeBron James has three friends who are given jobs within the organization. He also has his agent, Rich Paul, who accompanied p- private team chartered events and planes throughout the season. He was always around. And basically what you find out in the piece is that Rich Paul has run the Lakers more than Magic Johnson was run the Lakers this past season. And like that's, to me, what is so fascinating is you have two guys who don't know what they're doing, an agent who is seek, seeking the opportunity to prey upon an organization that doesn't know what they're doing, and LeBron James, the most famous player in the sport, trying to manipulate from behind the scenes this organization. And then it all blowing up in their faces because they don't land Anthony Davis in the season, and now they're kind of stuck. More on this. We'll let you hear from Magic Johnson as he responds to some of these allegations in this piece. Again, he's Chris Black. I'm Jeff Meller in for Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood. Hey, if you want a four-pack of tickets for Championship Sunday for the NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Race Series returning to Route 66 Raceway, Kicking off May 20th through, I'm sorry, May 30th through June 2nd. It's four nights of action-packed racing. Tickets are on sale now. For more information or to purchase tickets, visit Route66Raceway.com or call 888-629-RACE. If you want a four-pack, give us a call now at 312-332-3776. We will hook you up. Again, 
Magic Johnson responds to those allegations, and we'll get let you hear from a man who knows the Raptors quite well on ESPN 1000.